Astu Chamir Bijitam, Astu Chamir Bijitam, Valanta Vyanta Tasvara, Valanta Vyanta Tasvara, Adu Chamir Bijitam, Adu Chamir Bijitam, Gatista Vyanta Tuhari, Chanir Abhidetam, Palam Tabyam Tataswara, Palam Tabyam Tataswara, Adau Chanir Abhidetam, Adau Chanir Abhidetam, Gatis Tabyam Tatohari, Gatis Tabyam Tatohari. Amen. 
the, the process of movement, Tadyam from them, Tataha then, Ai Lord Vishnu. Translation. Thereafter the two hands of the universal form of the Lord manifested, and with them the power of grasping and dropping things, and after that Lord Indra appeared. Next, the legs became manifest, and with them the process of movement, and after that Lord Vishnu appeared. Purport. The presiding deity over the hands is Indra, and the presiding deity of movement is the Supreme Personality of Godhead Vishnu. Vishnu appeared on the appearance of the legs of the Virat Purusha. Things. 
And after that, Lord Indra appeared. And Indra is described as the presiding deity of the hands. And that is interesting. Um, because the hands are the tools uh, by which we can, uh, can do things in the material world, by which we can take things and make them ours, by which we can put things in positions where they are favorable for us. So in this way, the hands are giving us very important access to, uh, to lording it over the material energy and to try and enjoy the material energy. Isparaham ambogi. I am the enjoyer and I am the uh, I am the uh, I'm the controller and I'm the enjoyer. Indra, however, um, is not only engaging in uh, controlling the material energy for his own enjoyment. Indra is rather using his hands very nicely. It is said that Indra is very fortunate because the Supreme Personality of Godhead appeared as his younger brother. And subsequently, Indra was worshipping his younger brother, um, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, as a deity. And Indra would off, offer all the various items. Um, he would sometimes Along with other demigods, they would offer 16 items and other times even 64 items in, in deity worship. And in that way, he was like worshipping his younger brother. Then his younger brother would, uh, would at times, after the worship, leave him and Indra would follow him and worship the Lord in that way. But then the Lord would go to his abode and Indra could no longer follow. Um, and Indra returned to his own abode. Um, so in this way, Indra is also using his hands, which are ruling the universe, in worship of the Supreme Lord. And therefore, Indra is considered uh, extremely pious and extremely elevated because he understands how to use the senses. So all this which I just explained is, is found in the Briya Bhagavatam Rita of Sanatana Goswami, uh, who is, uh, where Narada Muni is trying to understand who is the greatest recipient of the mercy of the Lord. And he has first identified a Brahmana and glorified that Brahmana because the Brahmana was worshipping the Lord so nicely. Um, but the Brahmana said, no, actually, I am just worshipping, trying to. I'm doing a puja by myself. But in South India there is a king. He engages his entire kingdom in the worship of the Lord. So he is much greater than I am. So really he's a greater recipient of the mercy of the Lord. But then the king said, like, ah, we are making so many faults, we are so limited. It's the demigods who are really, really worshipping the Lord. Uh, and then Narada comes to Indra. 
Indra, however, explains that as demigods they may be worshipping the Lord, but that there is also personal desire, uh, that they are also benefiting, that while he's worshipping the Lord, he's remembering how the Lord has protected him so many times and has provided for, his, for him to regain his kingdom from the demigods, as he's worshipping his younger brother Vamanade, Upendra. Uh, in this way, he is, uh, he is greatly uh, grateful to the Lord. <coughs> and should he not be, since the Lord has rewarded him? So, in all his worship, is his attachment to the Lord or is his attachment to the results he gets from the worship? And is he actually not... Although he appears to be worshipping the Lord so, so nicely, is it actually not worshipping the Lord for the, for the sake of, out of love, but loving the results? So then, is he worshipping at all? Or is he actually uh, fulfilling his own fruitive desires? Um, so in this way, one can uh, perceive Lord Indra, and one can perceive how Lord Indra has been granted uh, control over many uh, aspects in the universe because the universe is an arrangement of, for the living beings to become bewildered. Um, that was the original purpose of the universe. And when Lord Brahma is creating the universe, he has to create uh, so many influences and one of the influences which he doesn't like to create is the influence of nescience, the influence of forgetfulness, so that the living being can be an illusion. So Lord Brahma creates that influence which is very powerful and he feels guilty at the same time. He feels like, what have I done now? Now I have created this influence of nescience and along with that I am basically creating a very powerful force which is cutting the living beings the living beings is cutting the living beings uh, of their opportunity to worship the Supreme Lord so, um, so then um, we can see that Lord Brahma started to feel guilty. He started to think, like, I'm creating this influence of nescience, and as a result, the living beings are are forgetting. Therefore, he created then uh, the four processes of gaining knowledge and put the four Kumaras in charge of that. <coughs> and which included uh, Sankhya, it, it included Yoga, and just now the other two won't come to mind. Uh, anyway, the point is that um, in due course of time, Indra is also placed in a position 
of control and power uh, over certain aspects of the universe. Because Indra, his piety is, is predominant. Although his material desires are there, his piety is predominant. And therefore, Indra becomes an agent, an agent of the Supreme Lord to uphold the religious order within the universe. And accordingly, the, according to the religious order, the more pious beings are residing in higher realms of the universe and the more impious being in lower realms of the universe. There's an interesting description in the Brihapagvatamrita where it is mentioned that one is placed in various planetary systems according to one's relationship with sexuality. We see that in the higher regions of the universe, such as Brahmaloka, it is the abode which is attained by sannyasis. Then there is uh, the Maharjan and Tapalokas are below. Tapaloka is the abode of the brahmacharis, attained by the brahmacharis. Then below, on the Mahar and the Janaloka, there we find great sages, and these sages on the Maharloka are preoccupying themselves with austerity and with the aim to, uh, to benedict the universe with transcendental knowledge. Then on the Maharloka, the Maharloka is the abode of the Prajapatis. Uh, we find descriptions in the Bhagavatam of different Prajapatis. Swayambhuvamanu is described as a Prajapati, Daksha is described as a Prajapati. And these Prajapatis were meant in the beginning of the universe to populate the universe. So it said the, the Prajapatis on Maharloka are constantly engaged in performing tapasya and constantly engaged in performing austerity and then for the purpose of, of producing uh, proper offspring. So they perform many austerities, just for that sake, to produce proper offspring. Then below that start the heavenly planets, where the demigods are very pious, but also sensually inclined, and also enjoying the senses. Um, then below that, we're coming eventually to the middle planetary systems here, where it is said the mode of passion is predominant. In the heavenly planets, the mode of goodness is predominant. So therefore, in the heavenly planets, one is inclined to do things according to the injunctions of Scripture. But if one takes birth on this planet, then one is like, <coughs> has inner resistance. One has inner resistance to the injunctions of the Scripture because here one is predominated by the mode of passion. And whatever influence of goodness comes, it comes after. It comes as, a, as an afterthought. I know we are supposed to. But I don't really feel like it, to be honest. Right. That is the basic uh,
condition in this middle planetary system, which is, and therefore, uh, sexuality here is not always bound by rules and regulations. What to do? Mode of passion is very much predominating. Um, uh, we see that sometimes in the heavenly planets also passions take over and there are some descriptions of some personalities who broke the rules and who were cursed, uh, who were immediately cursed, because such a thing is not possible in the heavenly regions. Whereas here, well, you know, we should understand, we should appreciate, uh, you know, we should basically uh, appreciate the criminals because we know how hard it is. We ourselves are also feeling it, how difficult it is to squeeze ourselves into this concept of prescribed duty. Oh, I want to follow my feelings. Means the mode of passion is predominant. So that is our. Uh, and then for those uh, who are uh, addicted to illicit sex, then we go into the lower regions of the universe, and there there is outright punishment. Uh, we see descriptions of, in the fifth canto, of embracing red hot forms of the opposite, of melt, molten iron of the opposite sex. That part is a bit intense. So, but it's interesting that uh, the key to placement in the universe is described to be sexuality. I'm still in the Briya Bhagavatam Rita, by the way, but this whole explanation. So, it's quite interesting if we look at it like that. Um, so, we have kind of contemplated on Indra's position and we can, uh, can see how in Riyad Bhagavatamrita Narada is glorifying Indra and therefore we should also glorify Indra and appreciate his extraordinary piety. Sometimes in our movement uh, we may have a tendency to minimize Indra because after all he said, well, the demigod still of material desire. So that's, you know, to be rejected. And the, uh, the real thing is, anything less than that is not really uh, so great. Therefore, uh, we might, and then Indra so many times uh, gets into trouble. Uh, like, time of Govardhan and all that, becoming proud therefore, and then he, uh, he killed that Brahmana, you know, like uh, Vishwarup uh, and so on, you know, who became the priest of the demigods. First of all, he's sitting on his throne, being glorified when his spiritual master comes, and then he doesn't get down and doesn't offer respect to his spiritual master, he becomes proud. His spiritual master just leaves. Subsequently, he needs a new spiritual master to perform yakyas and oblations. So they get this Vishwarup, but he is not the perfect choice because he has some lineage with the Daichas. Anyway, he agrees to become the priest of the demigod, so it's all fine. And he knows everything, he does everything correctly. But there is one problem. 
his attachment to the Daichas, so he's secretly also worshipping the Daichas. So this is and doing oblations for the Daichas, not worshipping doing oblations for the Daichas. So that is a major problem. So therefore Indra just in 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 a moment of passion acts and kills him. So just see, so like generally speaking, we look at these kind of things. Well, Indra, you know, then the, the sage and like, you know, and secretly in having, becoming invisible, having an illicit relationship with his wife and then being cursed. Uh, so you like vagina so much, then you can have, and his whole body became covered. That's very embarrassing. What do you do now? And the sage then turned them into eyes. And all these things we may recall. And therefore we may think, well, Indra, Indra. But that is not exactly correct because we're seeing how Narada is greatly appreciating Indra for his extraordinary piety, for his constant worship. And then that he makes some mistakes. That may be. But we should know a small man will make small mistakes and a big man will make big mistakes. Uh, wait till Donald Trump becomes the president. You will see. You know, he'll make big mistakes and we'll have to, to, to see it. It's, it's, it's obvious. What can we say? Uh, because a big man deals with big things. So, Indra is a very big personality, so therefore his mistakes look very big. But from the perspective of the Supreme Lord, from the perspective of Narada Muni, they're not so big. They're not so, uh, so big as we look at them. From, uh, of course, Krishna sometimes chastised him at the time of, uh, of the whole Govardhan situation. It is described by Srila Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur that, uh, that Krishna, after the whole seven days were over and after Govardhan was back in its place, that Krishna went to Govardhan to have a look at you know, what damage Indra really had done on the back of Govardhan. Because while Krishna was holding Govardhan, Indra was just throwing that thunderbolt. That's a look, you know, I mean, at the condition of Govardhan. So Krishna was checking it out, and then Indra was also uh, appearing there. And Krishna was shaking his head and said, Indra, Indra, how could you do such a thing? How could you do such a thing? You know, how could, could you come into this state of consciousness that you wanted to destroy and kill the residents of Vedanta? You're supposed to be a devotee. And so how is it possible? that you would have come to this consciousness. Indra said, I was proud. Krishna said, that's, that's okay. But a devotee is supposed to curb pride by intelligence. So that's no excuse. Then Indra said, yes, but I was angry and therefore I lost my intelligence. So, Krishna just shook his head and just left. He left him there. He didn't speak to him. So he did punish him uh, in different ways. But, 
he remained still Indra and he still remained. He didn't replace him or something like that. You're fired. <laughs> Nothing like that. Uh, he didn't fire him. He, because he knew that deep down Indra is such a pious soul and look how long he lives and look how many things he does right and then a few things not right just that you know he is so powerful that you know he'll make a few mistakes that is natural a little pride can come when one is so powerful so he didn't so in this way we should look at Indra as an extremely exalted soul and, and, and appreciate that these apparent very serious transgressions are from are when you are Indra not so serious. If we would uh, do such things, since we are small things, small men, that would be a very big thing for us. So in this way, we look at Indra from another perspective. Anyway, back to the thought, the point of Indra. When the universal form of the Lord became, uh, when the hands of the universal form became manifested, Indra became manifested and became the, the presiding deity. So it's interesting how the hands are representing Indra, taking and moving and controlling, which is what the hands do. Next, the legs became manifested. And with them the process of movement. And after that, Lord Vishnu appeared. Um, it is <clears throat> described by Srila Prabhupada in the introduction to the uh, Chaitanya Charitamrita that the word Chaitanya means living force. And that is the living force that moves things. And he describes how. how in that way, the Lord is the prime mover. It is the Lord who is the source of life. Without the Lord, there's no question of life or movement or energy. This is Lord Vishnu because this takes, this is, the, this is part of the maintenance. This takes a lot of energy. It is not just the creation, but this movement is an ongoing thing. It is said, Lord Brahma, is the creator, Lord Shiva, the destroyer, Lord Vishnu, the maintainer, because that takes unlimited energy. And here, to all the movement within the universe, can anyone sit still? I mean, as I'm looking here, blinking, scratching, you know, lifting glasses, putting them back down, and smiling, you know, like, uh, so many things, constantly, constantly in movement. Everything is moving yeah, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Some flyers moving around yeah. like that. So there is so much movement. Look outside, and the trees are just moving. The wind is moving, and the, the planet is moving. Yeah. Scientists are saying as you go uh, that that uh, the wind right, is blowing in one direction because of the rotation of the earth and that is why 
when you fly to Australia from Europe, it takes much longer than when you fly back. And sometimes on, on such a big flight, it can be like 45 minutes difference. That's a lot of difference, 45 minutes, just because the wind is blowing from a different side. So they schedule more time. Yeah, it's like same distance, but they schedule more time. So like this, so much movement is there everywhere, all the time, outside of our bodies and within the bodies. Right? <laughs> no, that little snack you had this morning is sort of It's moving. It's moving. It's going down. Right? That's that little, you know, booster. Oh yes, it's moving right now. You're holding it, but you can't hold it back. It's moving. So in this way, we understand that Lord Vishnu um, is the only deity who can be the controlling deity of the process of movement. It's now we understand that it took that personal. And that is very wonderful how we see that this whole, this whole creation is coming into being and how personal the whole thing is. And how the modern world view is so mechanistic. The whole universe is considered to be a machine and different forces are at work and are just uh, in, a, in an equilibrium and are just creating all kinds of things. Um, it's just like, uh, you know, you throw different chemicals together. Some basic, basic chemicals are thrown together. Um, and then um, you take some some phosphates and some other chemicals, you throw them together and then you run some electricity through it, right? Suddenly a boost of electricity. And what you get in what was otherwise clear is some sort of brown drab, right? Some brownish substance after the electricity. And these are amino acids. Oh, oh. Amino acids, oh, very important, because amino acids are nothing else but protein, and protein, everybody knows, oh, you need protein, without protein, where will you be? Uh, you cannot, you know, the human body, and protein, yes, 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 and then we get the DNAs, and these DNAs, right, are amazing things, right, because... The DNAs think first of all there's a long strand, one can compare it. I listened to a lecture of Sada Putra, so I know everything now. <laughs> That's why I sound so learned. <laughs> Just I'll confess. But you know, basically he says the DNA is like a string, like a long string. And one could, could sort of think there are knots in the string at certain intervals. Right? And the string is, then, is, is a coach of, like, according to which describes the nature of a living being. Right? And that string is very long. So they pack the string all together. They pack the string 
all together. So it's like a rope, up and down, like a stack, like a big stack of rope, and knots at certain intervals. Then, in order for a cell to multiply, it has to copy that string. So what happens is, in, this, in the cell, right next to the original DNA string, comes another one. And then, well, you try two bunches of rope on top of each other, yeah, two stacks of rope, and you try to open them up. Anybody who has second initiation knows, you know, because every once in a while, when you're trying to open that brown thread, yeah, sometimes it just goes wrong. <laughs> it does, you know. Okay, there are certain tricks which the professionals use. There are knots in them, and you hold the knots together. That's very important. If you don't do that, you're lost. You hold the two knots together and then pull, and you say a little prayer as you pull. <laughs> you know, because, especially, you know, when you have to give second initiation to someone as the guru, right? And you're opening the thread, right? Because you can, if you're smart, you get a secretary to open the thread to save you the embarrassment. <laughs> it can happen, you know, that you, the expert, like, poof, suddenly there's a knot in the whole thing. Because that's what strings do when they're next to each other. Uh, they tangle up. No, and that, what do you think that happens in the cells with the DNA string? Same thing, same thing. But no problem. There is some sort of machine. And what the machine does, the machine just comes in and cuts, you know, where the, where the knot is, it cuts where the, where the entanglement is, and um, just makes a cut, holds it, holds the ends at the same time and then cuts the other part also and then connects it again properly. So that's difficult, I mean, such a machine, but all that exists within the cell. So all this is going on, you know, and here we have looping of DNAs and all these things, right? Uh, sounds quite complex and all this is happening by chance, just in case you didn't know, just over time, over time. Um, Susana Puja did some calculations at that stage, since he's a mathematician, it, and he started to calculate the chance, and it came to something like one to the hundreds billion years. Well, we haven't completed that yet, so according to the chance calculation, by chance it couldn't have yet come about, it might take a little longer. Yeah? Uh, because some say 20 billion years, others say 10 billion years ago, the Big Bang. So all that doesn't work. So, okay, that's the whole mechanistic, the mechanistic or biochemistry view of creation. And it all is just happening like in a big mechanism. And then we live in it. And now we're living in it. At any moment, a meteor can fall on your head. And what are we going to do? No problem. No problem. Uh, there was, that same question was asked on a, on a television program. And uh, so the, the, the presenter was asking, the presenter was asking, so 
This meteor, meteorite is coming towards Earth, Earth, and what are we going to do? I said, well, no problem. We'll call the army and they'll shoot it out of the sky. Ah, simply, they, they sent like, uh, you know, a missile, a couple, a bunch of them, with nuclear heads, and they just blow the whole thing to pieces. Yeah? Easy. We just shoot it out of the sky. So they called Life, a general, and uh, they had him on the phone, and they asked the general, so, general, what do you think about this? You know, it's like, can we shoot the thing out of the sky? Uh, well, the general said, like, imagine a football field, right? and imagine that there are two men. One is standing at the back, you know, near the goal line, and the other one is standing in the middle on the side of the field, just also at the line. The man from the goal, he takes a gun and he shoots a bullet across the, uh, the football field and then the man on the side has to shoot that bullet out of the sky. He says, that's what you're asking us to do. He says, it's not easy to hit the target. Hmm, okay, okay, uh, yeah. Well, then what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What if the army is not going to save us? Well, then what we'll do? Then, you know, it gets serious, but at least we'll save humanity and we'll send a whole bunch of people in, in spaceships to other planets, you know, and there they can temporarily reside and then they'll come back, you know, we'll give them the technology to come back as well. And they'll come back to Earth after that, after the whole thing is over. And then repopulate the Earth, it's a lot. So, yeah. And, uh, but then they called an astronomer and they said, uh, to the, they asked the astronomer, how much advanced warning could you give us, you know, for such an impending meteorite collision? And the astronomer said, well, it's not going to be easy because the sky is very vast and with our telescopes, we are covering only certain portions of it. We are not covering every corner of the sky. So the chance that we see it with our telescopes is not so big. We might see it a few minutes before it hits. Oh, gosh. You know, how can you go to bed tonight? You know, a meteorite may just come out of the sky and land on your head. Oh my God, oh my God. We're living in this universe, oh no. And yes, this is what Nietzsche has, uh, has told the world. Man is living in a hostile universe. The universe is not our friend, it is hostile. We can be, we're attacked from all sides. I spoke about meteorites, but meanwhile, the germs are eating you from within. <laughs> I was talking with Vera uh, Badra about something, and then I said, I'll send it to you by email. If you give me your email, he gave me the email the next day, and then I couldn't remember what I was supposed to send him. He couldn't remember what he was supposed to send him. <laughs> and he was saying, well, 
or getting old. Vera Bajan, I read an article just for you to contemplate on. And it says that if there are like gaps coming into your memory, that is not just getting old. What is really going on, O Vera Bajra, is there is a good chance that you have worms in your brain. <laughs> and the worms, the worms, they literally are eating your brains. And you have, and it says you get holes in your brains. You get holes in your brains and then you forget. How does that feel? I also forgetting something sometimes. <laughs> or is, is Virabhadra the only one with worms in his brain? <laughs> of course, I'm conveniently forgetting that I'm also forgetting. <laughs> I must have a, a python inside my brain. <laughs> my gosh, it's like something. Anyway, what was I talking about? <laughs> Jeez. Well, so we're just looking at the two models next to each other. Huh? And so Nietzsche is saying we're living in a hostile universe, constantly under attack. Huh? In the, from the macro world to the micro world, and we are in between. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You know, and what is the answer? Nietzsche said, the answer is power. Power. And that's it. Uh, technology. You know, science. You know, you know. Bacteria, nuke them, you know what I mean? Take a nuclear pill. <laughs> Billions of bacteria just destroyed. Half dead. Half dead myself. <laughs> but the bacteria, the empire strikes back. The Empire Strikes Back Superbugs, especially in Delhi. <laughs> Delhi is full of superbugs. Right? It is described that in Delhi, in the ordinary, even in the bottle drinking water, there are superbugs. Superbugs that are sort of now announcing the post-antibiotic era. Yes. Because, you know, in India, if you are not well, you just go to the doctor and you ask for a goli. Or you get, you know, you get a goli or you get an injection, even better. And that, you know, is usually antibiotics. Even if you have a sniffle, it doesn't matter. They give you antibiotics. And thus, India is the, the best breeding ground for antibiotic-resistant bacteria, viruses, and whatever else. And therefore, we have superbugs. Not Superman or Supergirl, no, superbugs. <laughs> oh. oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do when a flu can kill you? That day will come. Oh no, anxiety, hostile universe. We need to increase our power. We urge, but we have a new approach genetic engineering. Ah, yes. Instead of fighting now with antibiotics, we're going to... We will have to make some changes, Mataji. I'm very sorry, you know, but we have to make some changes in the genes. It's the only way we can defeat the superbugs. You may no longer be the same person you used to be. <laughs>
went anywhere, you'll be still alive. <laughs> your head will become longer, or, you know, your hands start to grow six fingers. And God knows what else. Are you ready to give your organs 
You know, are you ready to donate your organs? Donate, donate now. You know, do you know that we can save people's lives? You know, when you when it comes to that day that you have to die, are you gonna give your organs or are you just gonna let them go to waste? Oh, are you gonna burn them to ashes? Huh? Or are you going to just be generous? And what is it to you? You're dead anyway. Really? When you give it away. Huh? So? Raise your hands right now. A show of hands. I want a show of hands to see who is generous and who will give from the heart. Are you ready to give your organs? Raise your hands. <laughs> Anyone? Come on, come on. Answers. You know, selfish. So, you are all full You have no compassion. The truth comes out, devotees. Oh, yes. You know, speaking lofty words. Love, you know, mercy to other living entities and all that. A simple little thing I'm asking. When you're dead, not when you're alive, you know, when you're dead, give your organs. Ready to give? Anybody? Oh, thank you. Hari here is a merciful man. Another one, another one. Two, two hands. Any more hands? Come on, come on, come on. Be brave. Be generous. Think of how much. What if you would be in that position? What if you would be waiting on the waiting list and there would be no organs? How would you feel if someone would be a donor? How would you feel? Come on.
Biography, we take out the different organs little by little. We take out first the easy things like the eyes, you know, take out the eyes. And then slowly, you know, start to take out organs that become more disturbing to the body. Eventually, you know, take out a kidney, right? And then, you know, like when you take out the second kidney, that's sort of when you have to start going for the heart, you know, and you go for the heart. Uh, now, what happens is, as they take out these organs, they are measuring things and they measure also blood pressure. And sometimes the blood pressure gets a spike as they take out an organ. It suddenly shoots up, just like when during an operation they haven't given a person enough anesthesia. In some cases, in brain-dead people, there even is jerking of the body. There is a jerk, a reflex, but no problem. They inject the body with a paralyzing agent. So that's, that's okay. That can be resolved before. You just inject with a paralyzing agent. Uh, you know, the person's brain-dead, you know, cannot be saved, finished, you know. Harvest all the organs and, you know, just getting ready for transplant. Are you ready? Okay. Ready. So it's amazing. Uh, amazing the progress we are making. The power of modern science and how we can save lives. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad that we caught a kidney to save my little daughter, you know? No, really, I mean, that this child, that this child has to go through this immense suffering. I wish I could exchange with her a hundred times and that I could go on the kidney machine. That, like, such a young child has to go for dialysis. But now, now, oh, thank God, we have a donor, we have a kidney. <coughs> Uh, yeah, but what are we doing? What games are we playing? Um, in the news, the last few days I was reading the news, and the news was showing was showing uh, children, you know, who are like in a uh, dying condition, and. Uh, just one child died in the arms of Santa. Do you feel better? Yep. Wow. What are you gonna, what are you gonna, where are you gonna go when you die in the arms of Santa? What's your next birthday? <laughs> and, and the last words of the child were, Santa, can you help me? Okay. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, there was another 13-year-old that started a court case to have the right to be frozen yeah, so that it could be revived later on and saying, and here we are using all our power to freeze people, to dress someone up as Santa and to fool kids. Um, why don't we just face the truth? And the truth is, you cannot die. You cannot die. Death is not such a big deal as we make it. 
The body is never alive. It's the soul that is alive. Therefore, dying doesn't even happen. We're uh, already dead. You're just a bunch of dead bodies. Just that you are. Or you're a bunch of dead bodies. Okay? Just that you know. You know. The body is not alive at all. It is the soul that is alive. Anyway, like this we can appreciate. So the Bhagavatam is saving us from this hellish understanding. You know, we're mentally living in hell with Nietzsche's uh, mechanistic universe where we need power, a hostile universe. He's intelligent, he figured it out, it's true. But we can see behind it and we see that actually it doesn't matter if you're about your if you have worms in your brain or not. It really doesn't matter. Let them eat it, because you're not your brains. Yeah? So, you know, even if you forget anything, just pray that you may never forget Krishna. Yeah? And for the rest. Maybe it's a good idea to forget the material world. Yeah? I know one devotee, a Prabhupada disciple named Shamla, who came originally from Navadvipa, and he, he, uh, he got cancer at one point and he got a brain tumor. And uh, his memory just disappeared. He couldn't remember anything. Uh, he, he remembered a few devotees. Uh, so I went to his house and he said, Oh, oh, I am so blessed. I am so blessed. A sannyasi has come to my house has come to my house, I am so blessed, you know. In Navadvip, right, you know, we are appreciating so much when a sannyasi comes to our house. He was remembering that he was from Navadvip. And then he was remembering Prabhupada and the interactions that he had with Prabhupada. He said, you know, Prabhupada used to like sweets. He used to tell me in Calcutta, to buy sweets for the deities huh? from certain shops, you know, not from anywhere, but from good shops, and then offer to the deities. And he could tell this story the whole day. He was, you know, it, like he tell you the story, and 20 minutes, 20 seconds later, tell you the same story again. And some people say, Oh, it's so sad. I said, Sad, it's perfect. He forgot everything. All that he remembers is his, he's got his proper memories. And then he's from Lama Dweep. Well, you know, I mean, gosh, you know, if you can live like that. And you could see that the disease had reduced him to his essence, to the essence of his being. And the essence of his being was, he was from the Dhamma. And that's not a small thing. And the other essence of the being was Prophet's mercy. And that's all that was left of him. And he left his body like that, in ecstasy. Yeah, I'd sign for it, yeah, if you can go in that way. Instead of thinking about a million things, what about my, you know, what about my savings, what about my, you know, computer, or, you know, what about, what about so many things? No, all gone. If one sees with transcendental vision, suddenly 
these things we lose, we're losing the cause of our suffering. We're losing the illusion that covers us. We're losing the nescience and all that remains is Krishna consciousness. So Bhagavatam brings us back to look at the universe in a very personal way. And isn't it interesting that Lord Brahma appeared on a lotus flower? And that like, which came from the navel of Lord Vishnu. And do we also have something with a navel in our birth? Isn't it interesting? Macrocosmos, microcosmos, and the similarity. And how everything is so personal. Isn't it nice that Indra is controlling the hands? Isn't it reassuring that Lord Vishnu is controlling movement? Because if he is, then he can control the movement of that meteorite. And he's probably got more chance to, uh, you know, to do something about it than that general, right? Because he sounds pretty useless, if you ask me. Uh, in this way, uh, Bhagavatam is giving us shelter and comfort in, a, in an understanding uh, which can bring peace of mind. And that's how, in a very practical way, Bhagavatam is superior knowledge. And how all this knowledge of modern science leaves a person in total anxiety. Superbar. Anyone donating any organs today? <laughs> ah, yes. Uh, we have to save lives. Ah, yes. Save lives, yes. We have to. Uh, any questions or comments? <laughs> Severe what? Alzheimer. And she completely forgot everything. But every day, the only thing that she would do is, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. She didn't even know why she was doing it. They didn't know why she was doing it. But that's the one thing that she did every day. Yeah. So Krishna never lets us down. Yeah. At that time. That's nice. Nice conclusion. Krishna never lets us down. So how about we say if Krishna doesn't let us down, he's there. <laughs> but he was very sharp. He had a very sharp brain. Let me say, his initial premises are, are wrong. Right? Because, but he was very good in, in systematic thinking. And that's why he became so uh, influential. Nietzsche has spoken about the Übermensch, 
that in the evolution there had to be something above man and that that was about to come in the whole concept of evolution. The greater than man. And that became a Nazi agenda. And of course, blonde hairs and blue eyes was closer than, <coughs> than Jewish noses. So they found a philosophy that justified we have um, the killing of the Jews. <coughs> so philosophy is, is helpful. So the outlook that we have of the world determines our actions. Therefore, when we have the outlook of Bhagavatam, and we see that everything is related to the Lord, and that the Lord is very kind and merciful, then we also become kind and merciful. But if everything is hostile, then in order, you know, what can we do? We have to save our life. You know what I mean? I mean, that's why we're taking the organs. It's not that we hate you, but we have to save our life, you know. And I'm sorry, but I've got to take that kidney. Just before breaking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, wait, wait. A little doubt, my right ear is blocked today. Because <laughs> I understand that genetic modified sound doesn't mess up with everything, but also, how will we be advanced at donating organs? Is it more also because of the parent karma and passing karma into the Okay, donating organs. Huh? Yeah, so besides the, uh, the, uh, the, the system of harvesting, which is not as sweet as we thought it was, leaving that aside for a moment, then you have the other ethical thing. What if I give uh, my heart you know, to someone who then becomes uh, a demon? And, or is already a demon, and I'm sustaining his demoniac way of life with my devotee heart. Okay? And it's just a piece of, of flesh. The subtle heart is not going with it, uh, as some people think. And uh, not most of the time, sometimes, the ghost goes with it. You know? So, uh, it is, when it says the soul is in the heart, it means in the region of the heart, it means in a in the subtle body, in the region of the heart, in the, in the heart that's transplanted goes into the other body and will then just uh, or give life to that person. Meanwhile, that person, uh, here we gave our devotee heart and or the heart that we used in devotional service and now that heart will be used in demoniac activities. And yes, we get karma for it. We get karma. And sometimes they say, that after a heart transplant, the person develops the taste of that the other person had, starts to like things that the other person had. How do we explain that? Personally, I think that the ghost of the person who's transplanted went with the heart and sort of began to influence that person. But that would be my explanation for that. Because it's not that the physical heart is actually where the soul resides or anything like that. But it can be that the ghost goes with it. And anyway, bouncing 
organ transplants around the room a little bit. Leaving that for what it is, it was just a graphic example. <laughs> Sinking ship 
or something like that. <coughs> then Satyushima would appear and save that person. And the whole movie was like that. You know, and people, after that movie, in India they started Shantushima temples. And they still have, even in Gujarat, you know, they have Santushima temples. And it's a totally Bollywood fabricated deity. You know? yeah? So see the danger of these things. There is, 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 is danger. So uh, I think devoted parents should not let their kids believe in Santa Claus. I think they should tell about Santa Claus. You know, that's fine. I mean, a little uh, awareness of saying whether you want to have a Christmas tree or not, I don't care. That's, uh, that's, uh, but to actually believe that there is a Santa Claus, I don't think it's a good idea. I think that takes it a bit too far. And you see the example of that boy who's dying in the arms of Santa Claus and got cheated. Santa, can you help me? And Santa just holds him, ho, 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 trying to cheer him up. And, and, and what is he bringing? That's terrible. That's a tragedy. Yeah, that's a tragedy. Whereas in reality, the history behind Santa Claus. In reality? In reality, the history behind Santa Claus. Santa Claus himself was a manifestation of the Coca-Cola industry. But in actuality, it's Saint Nicholas that they took as the epitome of Christmas. And Saint Nicholas was actually a saintly personality who helped people. Is that a Dutch explanation of... of <laughs> <laughs> Historically, actually, yeah? through the Christian teaching, yeah? uh, he was a, a personality who yeah. was extraordinarily saintly. Yeah, the same people as well, yes. yes, yes. And he's, he's... But are you sure that, uh, that that link is there? I mean... Yeah, that, that is yeah. absolutely where it comes from. Wow. When I come to Finland, they always say, hey, you know, Santa Claus is ours, he lives, he lives here. In Lapland, you know, he's got the dress of a Laplander, and he's moving in uh, what you call the sledge pulled by uh, by reindeer and all that. It's from Lapland, so they say. <laughs> anyway, enough about Santa Claus. Yes. From Santa Claus, we can see. At loud, I am really deaf in one ear today.
that's it. Therefore, Richard Dawkins, right, he leaves us out in, in hell. He gives us all his, his, his philosophy and in the end, we're in a hellish situation without shelter. Thanks, Mr. Donkey. <laughs> I'll stop now. Thank you very much. Should have all bad keep.